0: He is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. I wonder if that's something that we call to mind very often, that God is a God of order. It's something that we see even at the beginning of the Bible, where God takes disorder, an earth without form, and void, and darkness, and he orders all things. Day and night, the heavens above, and dry earth, and land and seas below, and then God fills the earth and the seas with vegetation, and on the land, living creatures, and even more than that, God gives meaning and purpose in his good order of creation, the stars Or for the signs and seasons, for days and years, there's the sun to rule the day and the the moon to rule the night and even the vegetation has seeds according to their own kind and living creatures as well. But we see God's good ordering most profoundly in those he made in his own image and after his own likeness. We see an ordering of one man and one woman, each made in equal value and worth, but different in form and function. And they're joined together in marriage. And it's in this context of marriage that they are to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over all the living creatures. But because of sin, we know God's good order has been put into disorder. And we see this daily, do we not? The reversal, in fact, of God's order, especially in the lives of those who bear his image and his likeness. In seeking to be wise, those made in his image have become fools. Instead of worshiping God, we worship the creation, we worship self. Instead of ruling as gracious and giving vice regents over creation, we war against God, we war against one another. Instead of joyfully living in the fruitful, loving union of marriage, we often want the fruits of marriage without the marriage, or we don't want the fruits of marriage itself. The world, though, despite its best efforts, still celebrates God's good design. We joyfully celebrate when the baby is born. We celebrate birthdays. We consider the goodness of marriage, of roles as husbands and wives, and remembering our wedding anniversaries. We even elevate the role and distinctions of mothers and fathers once a year. We still have these vestigial remnants of God's good order in our world. But the church is not to be those who simply cling to remnants. But we exert ourselves, we devote ourselves continually to living out God's good order in our lives. We call to mind what is of foremost importance. So we devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word. So we might learn and remember how God has so wisely ordered creation. We together, in the fellowship of the called-out ones, the saints, the church, we share life in Christ, and we exhort one another to God's good order in the gospel. We do this as we see that new day, that new creation, drawing near. The day when God's good order will be made manifest for all to see. When his kingdom comes in its fullness and glory. When everything will be as it ought to be. When we are worshiping God and not self, when we rejoice in life, eternal life and not death, or we celebrate marriage, there will not be marriage among us, there will be marriage between God's church, his bride, and the lamb. And so I pray that that is why you are here this morning. Although we swim in the waters of the world's disorder each day, we strive together each day, and especially on the Lord's Day, the day when we remember our risen Lord, who is even now reigning, we strive to order our lives after God's good and perfect design. And so we are thankful that we can know his good and perfect design through his word. So let's stand together. And read Acts 2, 42 through 47 to see how God's good order and design extends even to his church. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Let's pray. Lord, we appeal to your mercies again this morning that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. For this is our spiritual worship. Grant, Lord, that as we present ourselves to you, that we would not be conformed to this world, but that as we read your word, we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds and that by testing, we may discern what is your will, which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So as we've traveled these last couple weeks through Acts 2.42, that single verse, we've seen what it means for the church to devote itself to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And now we come to the third of these devotions, to the breaking of bread. And we would ask ourselves, hopefully, what does Luke mean when he says the breaking of bread? And I think... The context gives some some reliable hints. First, this breaking of bread was something that the church did and was devoted to collectively. These we can read back in verses 41 where those who had received God's word were baptized and were added to the disciples of Christ in Jerusalem. So this act of the breaking of bread is something that they did together. In fact, if you put your thumb there in Acts 2 and you go to the end of the book of Acts, we see perhaps another hint there of what this breaking of the bread is. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there we see that the very reason it seems that we can see that they gathered together was to break bread. On the first day of the week, when we gather together to break bread, 1 Corinthians 11 is a passage we often go to when we are about to partake in the Lord's table together. And there we see that their focus together, coming together as a church, was, in fact, the Lord's table. And Paul rebukes them by saying it's not the Lord's table you eat when you gather together. So the very reason that they were perhaps gathering together was to partake in the breaking of the bread, to partake in the Lord's table. I think there's a second hint that this breaking of the bread is the Lord's table or the Lord's supper back in Acts 2.42. It's a word that we can miss, perhaps, if we read too quickly. But there we see the definite article, the, which precedes that phrase. So this is not a general breaking of the bread, but the breaking of the bread. So it's a specific... And known act that they're about to do here. If we take a look even further earlier in that verse, we see that this the, this definite article, precedes all of these devotions. So all of these devotions are something specific. It's not a teaching that they are devoted to or a fellowship, a breaking of the bread, a prayer, but the. They're known quantities, specific. So if we trace our way through there, we see it's the apostles' teaching. So that's a distinct and known teaching, namely the teaching from and about Christ. It is the fellowship, a distinct and known group of people, those who share together life in Christ. And As we see here, the breaking of bread is a distinct and known act, which scripture shows points to Christ. This is the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's table, or communion, as some of us would call it. it is one of the two ordinances our Lord has given to the church, the other being baptism. So what is meant by the breaking of the bread? Well, first, and primarily, the breaking of the bread refers to the Lord's Supper. We can take a look back in Acts, or Luke 22 and see there and remind ourselves what this Lord's Supper is. Luke 22. It's interesting as we read the Bible to understand verses in their context, understand them by their genres, and also understand them by uh, other letters or books written by those same authors. So here we see Luke, who also wrote Acts, and see what he has to say. So Luke 22, here we des- he describes the institution of the Lord's Supper. We read about the celebration of the Feast of Passover, which is part of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. As we read earlier this morning, it's a continuation of that Memorial Day and Feast from, uh, from Exodus 12. And this rite was meant to remind the people and to teach the children of the Lord, passed over the houses of Israel. He saw the blood of the Passover of the Lamb as a sign on their doors. He spared their firstborn sons. And how, with this tenth and final plague, the Lord had brought his firstborn son out of slavery into Egypt. And so we read in Luke 22, beginning in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where where will you Have us prepare it. He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we see here in Luke 22 that the Passover was truly pointing to Christ, the true Passover lamb. He was the one... Would be sacrificed for the true Israel, the church, and they would be freed not from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin. And so he revealed that this Passover would now have a new meaning, that there was bread that was broken, but that bread would now remind his disciples of his body broken and given for them. There was a cup that was poured out. Now this cup would remind the disciples of his blood that was poured out on the cross, sealing the new covenant in his blood. And they were to eat and to drink in remembrance of Christ whenever they did so, much as Israel was to keep the Passover throughout all their generations. So we keep the Lord's Supper throughout all of our generations, that we do so as often as we do in remembrance of Christ. The church would hold what were called love feasts, which we read a reference to in Jude, and is probably what was happening in 1 Corinthians 11. And in this love feast, it would culminate in the Lord's table. So they would gather together as the church in love and fellowship. And then they would focus, as it were, on the crown of their time together, the remembrance of the cross. So this devotion that we have to the Lord's Supper, this breaking of bread, causes us to look back at the progressive revelation of God from the Passover lamb in the Old Testament to the Lord's Supper in the New. But it's even more than that, as you might suspect, that this devotion to the Lord's table also points us to another meal. Let's look again at Luke 22 and verse 15. And he said to them, "'I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you "'before I suffer, for I tell you, "'I will not eat it until it is fulfilled.' In the kingdom of God, and he took cup, a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And did you catch that? Jesus will eat of this Passover again when it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And Jesus will drink of the fruit of the vine again when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. We've heard reference to it earlier this morning, but this feast that he's pointing to, we can read about as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's turn to see that with our own eyes again this morning, Revelation 19.6. Revelation 19.6. As you're turning there, I wonder how much I have missed because I have read too quickly, how much we miss because we read too quickly. We read these things over and over again, and then we assume that we know what's there. But if we slow down, we pause, and we read each word of God's word, what insight and wisdom there is in the smallest dot or tittle. So Revelation 19.6 then I heard what would seem to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So when we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, yes, we are looking back to what God had begun in the Old Testament, to what he was further revealing in Christ in the New Testament. But we also are looking forward, are we not, to that day when the church, the bride of Christ, eats the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are looking back at the Lamb and presently at the Lamb and in the future toward that day. And This is a good time to ask ourselves, are we looking forward to that day? We want to see the Lord in his glory, where we will rejoice before his throne and exult, and we will give him glory. We will be clothed as his church in fine linen, bright and pure. It's amazing there in verse 8 of Revelation 19, that fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's something that, if it weren't in the Bible, you might not say it was true. (laughs) But it's there. But there is, I think, another meaning, not a different meaning, but uh, another meaning to what is meant by the breaking of bread that we read about in Acts 2.42. And that's why I want to spend the remainder of our time considering this morning before we partake in the Lord's Table together. So if you have your Bibles in your back and... Acts 2.42, I want you to see this, Acts 2.42, because I believe that this breaking of bread, while it does and primarily point to the Lord's Supper, it also points to our source of true nourishment. I think it points to our source of true nourishment. So we have a similar phrase to the breaking of bread in verse 46. There we read, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And here this phrase seems to refer to these meals taken regularly, day by day, it says. Very likely in smaller groups since there were, at this point, thousands of new Christians in Jerusalem. And so I think the picture here for us is that one of daily bread, of daily nourishment, And we can see as we trace through the New Testament that this aspect of the Lord's Supper, this aspect of the church being nourished spiritually uh, came even before Jesus' crucifixion, even before the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to trace through some things here that I think point to this idea of the breaking of the bread meant to point us to true nourishment. The first thing is that breaking of the bread helps us to focus on the fact that we need more than bread to live. I'll say that again. The breaking of the bread is meant to focus on the fact that we need more than bread to live. At the onset of Jesus' ministry, as he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was, sometimes the Bible understates things, he was hungry. And Satan tempted him, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus responded, quoting, quoting scripture, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there, Jesus is pointing us to the fact that, yes, we do live on bread, but not by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How else does breaking of the bread? point is to true nourishment I think it points us to true nourishment because it shows us the source of true nourishment we know this from Matthew 6 Jesus taught his disciples to pray give us this day our daily bread so what was necessary for the disciples lives including the body not excluding the body but including the body was to come from their heavenly father So we should pray to God to supply what we need each day. It's a daily bread, bread sufficient for this day. How else does the breaking of bread point us to true nourishment? I think it points us to true nourishment in our teaching, what we're taught. We spoke about this two weeks ago. When we come to God's word, do we look at it as an academic exercise for our minds or do we look at it as nourishment for our souls? In the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, Jesus displayed there an ability to provide more than enough for people's physical needs to the effect that there were seven baskets and 12 baskets left over so that his disciples not, ought to be primarily concerned about what they were to eat But they should be more concerned about what they were feeding their own souls. He tells them to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What was this leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What was this bread? Well, he says, this is the teaching of the Pharisees. This is the teaching of the Sadducees. And what was that teaching? It was a teaching that focused on self-reliance and self-centeredness. It was a teaching that focused on outward righteousness and appearances. It was a teaching that focused on hearing or honoring with lips, but hearts that were far away. And Jesus says to them, "Don't labor for this food that perishes, but labor for the food that does not perish." So this breaking of bread, as we focus it on our being our nourishment, we know that we need more than our food for our body to live. We know that we look to God as a source of this nourishment. We know that it's primarily concerned with the teaching that we receive. And in John 6, during another Passover, we see that this nourishment is Jesus himself. That he is the one whom we feed upon. He is the one who nourishes our soul. Jesus was teaching them that it was not Moses who provided manna, In the wilderness, this bread from heaven to Israel. But it was God who provides the true bread from heaven. And this bread from heaven was pointing to Jesus himself. And Jesus tells them that he is the bread of life. And those who come to this bread of life shall never hunger. And those who believe in him shall never thirst. And those who ate the manna still died. But those who feed on the true bread of heaven will live forever. And what is this bread? I love it when the Bible gives clear answers. Jesus says this bread is his flesh. It was a hard saying, a difficult saying. Many of his so-called disciples left him because of this hard saying. But what was his flesh pointing to? his sacrificial death on the cross, where true life is, where true nourishment is. And so it is with us today that we who day by day break bread in our homes, we can, as this early church we read there says, we can receive our food with glad and generous hearts, not simply because we can see that God's providing for our physical needs as we eat this meal, but that he is caring for our souls through the gospel, through Christ himself. And I wonder if we realize what opportunities we have every time we sit down together to eat at each meal. As hungry as we can be at times between those meals, what an opportunity it is to be reminded that as much as our bodies need this food, how much more our souls need was only provided to us through Christ himself and notice too that the very act of eating points to a sufficiency outside of ourselves how we are really not self-sufficient for how long can any of us go without eating My kids maybe go three hours, (laughs) and then it's like they're going to die if they don't eat. But we realize that we go from one meal to the next, and we are needing something. And the something comes from without. It doesn't come from within. We don't provide our own food. We have to go someplace to get our food, whether it's the fridge or a restaurant or whatever it might be. And yet how many of us proceed each hour and each day Tempted to think that we are sufficient in our own righteousness apart from Christ. But as we eat, we're reminded that what we need is not another meal of our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. That we are to feed upon Christ. That's not even our devotion to the Apostles' teaching or our devotion to the fellowship or to the prayers, or even to the Lord's Supper that earns us any right standing before God, but that our sufficiency comes only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then, I wonder then, when we gather together as a church, or we gather together in our homes, would we have a renewed sense of what it means to truly break bread together? That we might more and more be able to receive our food with glad and generous hearts. Does your family say a prayer or word of thanks before you eat a meal? We do, or at least we try to do. (laughs) But often it can become this rote, perfunctory action. God, thank you for this food. And then you're on to eating, right? Maybe we don't even pause to consider what we're doing or why we're doing what we're doing. And so church, I would ask you, how would redeeming even that one moment before we eat transform our lives? That we would even have a true Eucharist, a true thanksgiving offered to God. For every meal would be an opportunity then to be drawn more and more fully to Christ And away from self, drawn more and more fully to the one who nourishes and sustains our souls, drawn to the one in whose righteousness is all of our sufficiency. And then would we not be, in fact, following the example of Jesus who took the bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and gave it to them. So as we have even devoted our time to the Apostles' teaching of the Lord's Supper this morning, as we have devoted ourselves to gathering together as the fellowship, as the church, let's take some time now to devote ourselves to the participation in the Lord's Supper itself and an extended time of meditation and consideration in light of all that we have learned from Acts 2. If you have your Bibles in front of you, Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Because believe it or not, I think there's still more to say. (laughs) If you did not pick up a uh, communion cup on your way in, if you raised your hand, Our deacon Jeff Shank will pass it to you. So as we turn to consider our time around the Lord's table this morning, there are perhaps five considerations that we try to hold forth, if not every Lord's Day, then in our time together throughout the weeks and the months that we do this. Some of this will sound familiar because it's, well, hopefully it does sound familiar because it's things we've taught and discussed and meditated on before. But even this morning, we'd be perhaps reminded anew and afresh of these different facets of the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes for us, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So five things to remember as we participate in the Lord's table this morning. The first is that this is meant to be a memorial. This is to be a memorial day. And we shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all of our generations, as a statute forever. And when our children say to us, what do we mean by this service? How will we respond? We will say, this is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For the blood of the Lamb is a sign for us. And when the Lord sees the blood of the Lamb, he passes over our sin. And no condemnation will befall us. We teach our children and remind ourselves we eat and drink because of what the Lord has done for us when he brought us out of bondage to our sin. For it was by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of a house of slavery. So what we do, we do in remembrance of Christ. We remember his broken body on the cross as he became sin for us. We remember his precious blood poured out, the blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. We also are reminded of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. We read these verses from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So as we sit around the Lord's table, we do so as the Lord's people. Those who have Christ's law written upon their hearts. Those who know the Lord, or as Paul writes in Galatians, those who have rather come to be known by God. For God has forgiven our iniquity and our sins and remembers them no more. Further, we remember that this time around the Lord's table is one of fellowship, one of sharing life together in Christ. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. This cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, Our one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we are not those who lie, do not practice the truth, but we are those who walk in the light and have fellowship with one another. We are those whose uh, sin is cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we know this because the church are those who are eager to maintain the unity of the spirits and the bond of peace. We remember that we are many. But in Christ, we are one, that we are individually members one of another, and that when we come together, it ought to be for the better and not for the worse. That we are not to despise the church of God, that we are not to humiliate one of uh, those among us who have nothing, but we are to wait and look at the interests of others. And we are to remember that we can have true fellowship, it is possible to have fellowship. Because our fellowship is first and foremost with the Father and with His Son. We remember the gospel as we partake in the Lord's table. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Paul said that He delivered to them what is of first importance that He received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. And so we come to the Lord's table, we partake in the Lord's supper, remembering that we were not righteous, that there are none who understand, there are none who seek after God. That all have turned aside, have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. We remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I wonder how often we would forget that ourselves, that we begin to see ourselves as righteous. And we read from God's word that the wages of our sin is death, And we should examine ourselves and wonder, do we see ourselves as righteous or do we see ourselves as those in need of a savior? Is the blood of the lamb on your doorpost this morning? Have you known what it is to embark on an exodus from sin and slavery to sin? Do you see in your life a disorder as a result of sin? And you look at that, and you say, more than the consequences of my sin, I see the root of my sin is my sinfulness, and my sin is first and foremost against the holy God. If you have not come to the place of seeing your sin in that way, then we'd ask that you would refrain from participating. For this gains you no merit, does not earn you in your righteousness before God to eat and drink of the cup of the Savior, whom you have not embraced, the Lord who rules, who you do not kneel to. But if in the preaching of the gospel this morning, in its various forms, in its various ways, You have come to be cut to the heart, then there is a great promise for you this morning. Which is that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And these precious words For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter whether you are religious and you've been to church and now you realize, I don't believe this. Jesus is not my Lord. I don't treasure him. I don't trust in him. I trust in myself. It doesn't matter whether you are completely worldly and have done all manner of what even the world would call sins. It does not matter. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And then... Having been justified by faith, you will have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You will have access by faith into this grace in which all Christians stand and rejoice. For we are those who rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that is our last aspect that we remember as we partake in the Lord's table together that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, a hope that we have not presently seen in its fullness, but a hope that is just as sure as we see the bread and we see the cup in our hands. We read that blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Truly happy will we be. And so we will be blessed, even as we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread today, even as we receive our food with glad and generous hearts, when on that day the shadow of what we do will give way to its fullest reality, when we will be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will ever rejoice and exult and give him glory on that day, when we, the bride, are clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. Lord, I pray that in our devotion to your word this morning that we would have decreased even in our own eyes. Forgive us, Lord, when we are so preoccupied with ourselves that we do not behold your glory. pray lord that our meeting together this morning would have been for the better and not for the worse because we have desire to exalt christ in our midst this morning to his name be glory forever amen